0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the Cato Institute, and thank you for joining us this morning um, and choosing to spend your time in our lovely air conditioning instead of the balmy uh, DC summer out there. Uh, My name is Jen Keister. I am a visiting research fellow uh, here at Cato in the Defense and Foreign Policy Department. Um, So thank you again for joining us uh, for our event this morning on when is foreign internal defense, or FID, a smart policy tool for Washington. Uh, Particularly in the shadow of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, Foreign Internal Defense, or FID, has become an increasingly uh, important element in the foreign policy debate. Uh, While FID lacks a consensus definition, either governmentally speaking or academically speaking, uh, it comprises a basket of activities broadly aimed at what former Secretary Robert Gates describes as helping others defend themselves. Uh, it's most commonly associated with DOD efforts, particularly the Overseas Contingency Operations, or OCO. Uh, but FID largely has a, what's framed as a whole-of-government approach, including efforts by the State Department, USAID, DEA, and other branches as well. In an era of more limited fiscal resources and declining domestic and international political support for direct military intervention, this concept is more important than ever. Uh, The debate on Iraq um, in sort of recent headline news is the most recent case, but it joins a host of other crises um, and events that have spurred calls for FID like uh, style activities from various quarters, uh, including the ongoing crisis in Syria, the Boko Haram kidnappings in Nigeria, Al Shabaab's Westgate Mall attack in Kenya. Instability in northern uh, Mali, and continuing activities of the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda and South, South Sudan, amongst many others. Helping others defend themselves uh, sounds like a fantastic soundbite, um, but it does risk becoming a seductively attractive middle ground between those concerned about persistent global threats um, and, again, these fiscal and political limitations on direct intervention. We could build stronger allies, and there's the possibility of finding local solutions to local problems, and ideally ensuring that they remain local problems. The prospect of a smaller footprint lowers the U.S. profile and potential political fallout, um, as well as a demonstrably lower expenditure in blood and treasure. President Obama's foreign policy speeches, particularly his State of the Union uh, this January and his West Point address in May, emphasize a reduced global footprint for America in favor of working with quote unquote partner nations. But who are these partners? Uh, Good partnerships generally require good partners and how can we identify cases that are good opportunities versus those in which we risk buying some of the same problems or risks identified in direct interventions just at a lower price? How much effort and what type of effort do we put in versus how much our partners do? How do we measure success and effort along the way? Uh, Some of the risks of this type of intervention or activity have been highlighted in the recent debate about Iraq, but we should consider asking the same questions about other cases and have the same concerns um, in terms of developing a broader policy perspective and strategy. In many of these cases, we have to partner with the host government and its military with reputational and practical concerns here. Uh, who Many of their activities may have created or exacerbated the threats that we seek to address. There's also a concern about capabilities versus interests and incentives. Transferring capabilities, uh, either military training, uh, you know, capacity building, governmentally or militarily, uh, and financial aid is not the same thing as teaching or being sure of how partners will use these capabilities. Partners may use these capabilities or their own for activities other than US interests or potentially even counter to them. And alignment of interests may be fragile, uh, limited, or non existent. Smaller footprints also do not eliminate the time commitment issue. Um, some, instant- some changes are slow. Short term interventions may not have the desired effect. And long term involvement should be carefully considered in all cases. Again, the debate about Iraq has highlighted many of these concerns, but we need to learn what we can from specific cases, like Iraq and others, and move to a broader policy debate about when FID is a smart tool and assess its risks. To discuss these issues, we have an embarrassingly well qualified panel here today, all of whom have thought extensively about these issues and draw from a range of experience with FID operations and the areas in which they are conducted. Sean McFate is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council He formerly served in the 82nd Airborne and as a defense contractor in Africa, where he helped to rebuild the Liberian Army. He has written extensively on a range of international security issues, including US efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. James Story joins us from uh, the State Department, where he is the director of the Office of Western Hemisphere Programs and the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, and has extensive experience uh, with Plan Colombia. Dave Maxwell joins us from. from Georgetown University, where he's the Associate Director of the Center for Security Studies and Security Studies Program at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. He served for 30 years in the Army and Special Forces in numerous operations, including the initial execution of the U.S. uh, FID operation in Southern Philippines, where I have a particular interest having spent three years uh, running around in the shrubbery studying the rebel side of that particular conflict. Uh, and last but certainly not least, uh, Vanda Felbab Brown joins us from the Brookings Institute, where she is a senior fellow in foreign policy at the Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence. She's written extensively on a range of international security issues, but with a particular focus on non traditional security threats. And her yeah. writing and field work have taken her to a number of very interesting places in which these types of concerns are paramount. So please join me in welcoming the panel and look forward to the discussion.
1: Roger. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, this is an, an issue that we uh, have been watching unfold in the last uh, couple weeks, at least in Iraq. And uh, to begin with why this is important, well, let's remind ourselves that um, the United States of America spent billions of dollars in Iraq and years were invested in creating the security forces there. A security forces of about 200,000 to 250,000 that were routed by a couple thousand jihadists who now drive American-made Humvees and are taking weapons back to the Syrian border. It's important that we do this, but it's important that we do this right. So helping allies build better armies is, is in my vein, uh, vision, a strategic imperative of this country. Uh, it is both operationally important because helping allies stand up as we stand down in places like Afghanistan, that is the exit strategy for costly peacekeeping and stability operations around the world, not COIN or other things, in my view. Strategically, we face a Hobson's choice. If we do not help allies secure and guard against shared interests, then either we have to, the U.S. or others, have to go in and do it ourselves, or we ignore it at our own peril. That is the Hobson's choice that we face. Now as Jen rightly pointed out in her introductory remarks, one of the problems and challenges of this field is that there's no agreed upon terminology or conceptions. There's many different terms to describe many different aspects of this program, this type of activity, and they have important and distinguishing nuances and some, frankly, are just academic vanity. The nuance is academic vanity. But we are talking for the purposes of, of what we're discussing today is a similar basket of capabilities. The term that I will use is a, is a term most commonly used in the international community of security sector reform, or SSR. It is not a perfect term. It means different things to different people. But this is not an academic conference today. Uh, we will talk... More also that SSR is more than training and equipping soldiers. Training and equipping gives you better-dressed soldiers who shoot straighter. SSR is actually far more complicated than, than training and equipping, which is the mantra we hear coming out of the Pentagon and others consistently. It is the complex task of transforming a security sector into a political, apolitical, legitimate professional security force that upholds the rule of law that is more than training and equipping training and equipping is necessary but insufficient to achieve this we're talking about creating institutions a professional ethos etc the purpose of ssr is quite simply to help a state consolidate its monopoly of force to uphold its rule of law there are many different def- definitions of ssr this is one that i think for a policymaker is uh, perhaps the most universal. So when I talk about the security sector, what am I talking about? I, uh, and colleagues may disagree with you, I am not talking about safety. This is not OSHA standards. This is security, defending a population and a state from threats domestic and external. It is also those institutions which are directly responsible for the security of a state. My, I have a taxonomy I use to describe the security sector. It's like a pyramid. On the bottom are operational actors. These are the actors, the police, the military, prisons, border uh, control, that interface directly with people and, it, and populations. Managing them are institutions, ministries of defense, ministries of interior, et cetera. It changes based on the state. And above this is our oversight bodies, the executive, a uh, legislative branch, you could include civil society, NGOs, uh, media, etc. Not included in this are non-statutory forces, like militia. By definition, a state cannot have a monopoly of force if it has unauthorized actors out there contesting its monopoly of force. Unfortunately, this has been a trend in recent UN missions, for example, South Sudan, where they take uh, a military and its enemies and put them all into one big military and call that peace. That is not peace, it's a recipe for disaster, as we've seen in South Sudan, which has recently, uh, in the last year or two, blown up. But this is a difficult task. So how do you transform a security sector that may be an instrument of terror into one of justice and democracy? Or put another way, and I think this is the ultimate metric for success, is how do you create a soldier or policeman that a child would run towards for protection than away from in fear? Again, a failure to do this, as we've seen in in Iraq, will lead to strategic failure. And we've seen this quite a bit. So currently, U.S. programs in Iraq, Afghanistan, and in 2012, more coalition soldiers were killed at the hands of the Afghan recruits than they were by actual Taliban. Um, In Mali, the coup in Mali that basically set the Sahel on fire requiring the French to intervene uh, was staged by... U.S. trained Mali soldiers, but the U.S. is not alone in this challenge. The U.N. has also had uh, has had bleak record in SSR, Congo, Haiti, East Timor. Timor Leste, uh, 2004, a coup d'etat was led by police that were trained by the U.N. Um, but and people are, tend to look out and say, "Well, give me an example of success." One example I would submit, uh, although truth and advertising, I was involved in this, is Liberia. Um, the Liberian military suffered a, well, went went through a 14-year civil war that was even uh, venal by African standards and committed great human rights atrocities. Uh, Today, the Liberian military uh, is a stronger institution and even sent a peacekeeping contingent to Mali. So why is SSR so difficult? Um, So briefly, um, and I come to this as a practitioner as well, having done this in Africa for several years. First, as we've seen in Iraq, is that the risk of the security sector being co-opted by ambitious generals or politicians is great and can do much more harm than good. Second is this train and equip mentality presents a cognitive barrier for what is possible in SSR or FID. Third, it takes a long time, 10 years or more. You know, are we talking South Korea? Uh, This is what's required. Four, these are deeply political programs. They're not like um, food programs. We're talking conflict-affected states. You're talking about rewiring who has the the monopoly of force that becomes deeply political very quickly. Technical approaches will fail. Next is that this is inherently interagency. USAID, DOD have a hard time sometimes getting along and agreeing on what security even means. It's the same for the United Nations, UNDP versus UNDPKO. Creating a new security sector may threaten the local population and regional neighbors, which will reject it. And there's a lack of know-how, which is hard to believe that after 15 years of this or more that there is this, but there is no uh, comprehensive practitioner guides. You can't give somebody a uh, a manual and say, okay, help stand up an SSR program in Mali. It doesn't really exist, I would argue. Talking about Liberia quickly, uh, for some lessons learned quickly, Liberia, again, suffered a 14-year civil war. Uh, It's a small, where where we had child soldiers, blood diamonds. People would, militia would capture people and ask them if you want long sleeve or short sleeve. If you said long sleeve, they'd chop off your wrist right here, short sleeve up here. Um, Rape was both a tactic and a strategy of war. It was a a severe human rights catastrophe. Um, When we got there, the, the military itself was, at, you know, was responsible for a good deal of these human rights abuses. So my role there with, with my partners there was to figure out how to create SSR and, and, and successfully so. So here's some prerequisites I would suggest. Before you consider as a policymaker, can we do SSR? First of all, cessation of fighting. I don't believe SSR can work if there's low intensity, conflict, or greater going on in the region. Second, who's gonna be providing security during SSR. Some needs to be doing it. In Liberia, we had the UN, which was useful. Third, a peace agreement between all warring parties that lays out as much as possible what the program will be. Who's in the five Ws, and who can, who's eligible, timelines, goals, and so forth. Four, for the host state, for the state undergoing the reform, is there a political rule of the regime, or will they find this threatening? How about the people? The people of Liberia were very wary about a new military being created there since the old military was a perpetuator of human rights abuse. For donors, do we have the resources, time, and domestic political support for a long-term program? Six is understanding what the causes of the conflict were to begin with. It's very tempting to to cut and paste uh, Department of Defense templates for doctrine onto places like Afghanistan where they may not be suited. And seven, do we have a workable plan and a competent program to, um, to create this program? So quickly, here are ten tips for those who wish to raise armies in the future or police forces. I will not go over the entire list uh, due to time constraints, but I will say this: is that we must do a better job at human rights vetting of candidates. We'd never dream of putting a cop on the DC streets or enlist somebody in the Marine Corps without doing a thorough background check. Yet that happens every day in the Congo, and Iraq. Um, And there are inherent dilemmas, for example, security versus justice. We like to think that security and justice buttress one another, but they don't always do so. Do you have to grant amnesty to combatants to get them to lay down their weapons, for example? Um, Or do you hand over your records of who's in your army to a truth and reconciliation commission, etc.? There are a lot of um, finer points that brief well in theory or in Washington, but are hard to, to operationalize on the ground. So, in conclusion, I would just advocate being humble about what we can do. Um, perhaps the U.S. can't do something, and or others, the U.N. cannot do something, and non-action uh, might be better in some cases than uh, some action. For example, do we want a half-made security sector than a than no-made security sector? If, if to be kind of crass about it, you can argue both sides for that. So, thank you very much. Uh, in conclusion, we can discuss many these things in. Q&A. Uh, uh, thank you.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Well, good morning, and uh, thank you to Cato and to, to Jen for uh, inviting us here today. I think this is a very important subject. Uh, let me follow up uh, Sean, and uh, uh, he didn't plug this, but he just published a very good article with his 10... Uh, uh, 10 um, uh, ideas for, uh, for security sector uh, reform and for building uh, national armies in, in the uh, online journal, War on the Rocks. So You can uh, read in detail what he was uh, talking about. I'm going I'm to try to talk about a handful of things here. First, what, what is FID and, uh, and what it is not? How FID is part of uh, the Army uh, Special Operations and the concept of special warfare, how it's used to support counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, uh, specifically my experiences in the Philippines, Uh, Note the emphasis on support, as in support to the uh, Philippine forces as their forces conduct counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, and and this is a very important concept within uh, Foreign Internal Defense. I'll briefly uh, uh, use my experience to to briefly answer the three questions before us that uh, Jen has posed uh, for this conference. Is it a smart tool? Uh, Does it produce more more effective and self-sufficient partners? Or does it pull us into uh, local fights and risk outsourcing our interests? And I may have to provide some more details though in the Q and a, and I'll be glad to do that. First, uh, really to follow on uh, with Sean, uh, FID does not equal or equate to solely training uh, foreign military forces, and it certainly does not equate to soft special operations training uh, foreign military forces, or even, uh, as some would have it, special operations training foreign special operations forces. Yes, FID is a soft activity uh, in Title ten of section one six seven of the u s. Code. Uh, but it's not a SOF exclusive mission. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, prior to 9-11, we really didn't grasp that. And it's always been associated with SOF. And I think that has been one of the reasons why we've had such a proliferation of doctrine, uh, such as security force assistance uh, and the like, because the military, uh, let alone the interagency and, uh, and academia, uh, generally misunderstood uh, uh, FID or did not embrace FID as a uh, as a concept. So in today's Army... Doctrine uh, fit is part of special warfare that's conducted by army special operations forces, but it is not exclusive Uh, And I'll just touch on special warfare uh, So we're all on the same sheet of music and this is the execution of activities that involve a combination of lethal and non-lethal actions Taken by specially trained and educated force that has a deep understanding of cultures foreign language proficiency and small unit tactics and the ability to build and fight alongside indigenous combat formations we touched on small footprint operations. Uh, They are useful and they are important, but they're not a panacea. Uh, If they are successful, it is not because they were simply small footprint, uh, but because they were really part of an integrated campaign that supports good strategy and effective policies. And that's really, uh, really key. Uh, They're based on thorough assessments that seek problem understanding, and those assessments inform the plans and strategy. And if there's one word you'll hear me emphasize throughout this, it is assessments and how important they are. They also benefit from long-term relationships, sound fundamental doctrine, but beware the small footprint operation. It is not a silver bullet. Now many look to the Philippines, Colombia, and the Horn of Africa as models, and they can provide useful lessons, but I'm leery of using anything as a model. Uh, each problem is unique, uh, and the simple application of a model from, one, from another operation is unlikely to achieve the desired effects now, despite what uh, Jen said about uh, uh, lack of uh, definition of foreign internal defense, of course, the Department of Defense does have a definition, uh, and, uh, and it is this, participation by civilian and military agencies of a government uh, in any of the action programs taken by another government or other designated organization to free and protect its society from subversion, lawlessness, insurgency, and terrorism, and other threats to its security. Today we say action programs, but uh, traditionally, from a historical perspective, these are internal defense and development programs of a host nation. And today we use the terms uh, that were actually coined by the U.S. country team in the Philippines long before it became popular in the Beltway uh, or in US OCOM in Tampa. The three Ds, diplomacy, development, and defense. But Most importantly, FID provides a framework for policy, strategy, and supporting campaign plans. There are three types of FID. Uh, Indirect, which we normally associate with Title 22 security assistance, uh, foreign military sales, foreign military training, uh, international military education and training and the like. Direct FID, which is direct support to a host nation, uh, but where the U.S. does not have a combat lead. Uh, And then Combat FID, where U.S. and host nation forces, forces partner in direct combat operations, such as Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, note that in the Philippines, uh, the mission was conceived, planned, and executed before FM-324 was ever, uh, it, before it ever existed. And it was based solely on foreign internal defense doctrine uh, and years of, uh, of special forces uh, experienced, uh, actually decades. But fundamentally, uh, the decision to, uh, to execute foreign internal defense really requires answers to two questions. First... The fundamental question is whether it is in the interest of the U.S. to advise and assist friends, partners, and allies to defend themselves against lawlessness, subversion, insurgency, and terrorism. And if it is in our interest, then we have to ask the second question, whether U.S. assistance is simply feasible, acceptable, and suitable. In short, does U.S. support provide a reasonable chance of success? And therein lies the importance of conducting thorough and continuous assessments uh, to update the answer to that question. Uh, And while an initial assessment is important, it must be continuous, and we must evaluate the situation. So when is FIT a smart tool? Well, The answer to this lies in the third question, Uh, and FIT is a smart tool, as I said, when interests of the U.S. and its friends, partners, and allies are aligned, or as aligned as best they can. FIT is smart uh, smart when working with a sovereign nation, such as the Philippines or Colombia. FID is smart when it is not appropriate for U.S. forces to conduct unilateral operations or operations where U.S. is in the lead due to political considerations, and in particular, the legitimacy of the host nation and its security forces. Where legitimacy is important, uh, it's important that the U.S. are supporting and not in the lead. Finally, fit is smart when it is in support of effective policy and strategy and orchestrated through a comprehensive Paul Mill campaign plan. Now, does FID produce more effective and self-sufficient partners at lower political and financial cost to Americans? It can, and it will, if the strategy and campaign plan are based on thorough, critical, and objective assessments. This is the number one reason why there appears to be some success in, uh, in U.S. support in the Philippines. We went to Afghanistan in extremis in uh, September and October of, of 2001 as part of the punitive expedition there. But in October 2001, PACOMS deployed elements of Special Operations Command Pacific to conduct a combined assessment, combined with the Filipino, Philippine military and the Filipinos, uh, of their security situation from the strategic to the tactical. And this assessment formed the, the informed the campaign plan and the strategy that is still being executed to this day. The strategic to tactical assessment uh, provided the basis of the plan, briefed to Admiral Blair in 2001. But the Philippines was unique because we had a long relationship prior to 9-11. Uh, and the Philippines is our longest-standing treaty ally. Uh, so in comparison to other situations, we should keep that in mind. Uh, this long relationship, the relationships uh, between soldiers of uh, both countries, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, uh, as well as government officials, were, um, was really important. I'd just like to touch on the mission statement that we used. The Joint Special Operations Task Force, in coordination with the country team, key words there, Build capacity and strengthen the Philippine security forces to defeat selected terrorist organizations in order to protect Philippine and U.S. citizens and interests from terrorist attack while preserving Republic of the Philippines sovereignty. In coordination with the country team and Philippine sovereignty, rarely do you see those uh, words in a military mission statement. But we recognize the importance of those uh, of those uh, um, concepts and that they needed to be in the military mission statement because. Bid is not a military mission alone. Uh, I'm going to skip over the lines of of operation and and the details. I'll be glad to talk about those. Uh, The best evidence, though, of the host nation becoming self-sufficient or more proficient is the recent decision to transition the Joint Special Operations Task Force by standing it down over the next year and continuing support to the Philippines through steady state activities conducted through the U.S. country team and the Joint U.S. Military Assistance Group. The bottom line is that the answer to the question of whether FID will produce more effective or self-sufficient partners has to start at the beginning with a brutally critical and honest assessment. The assessment made uh, should be able to determine the feasibility and on what cost. And we talk about time when General, Lieutenant General Fridovich, then Colonel Fridovich, briefed Admiral Blair. He was asked how long this would take and he said, we really need a decade to really start determining if sustained uh, uh, effects will be achieved. FID is generally a long-term endeavor and requires a sustained commitment until the assessment determines that it is no longer has a reasonable chance of success or that the proper effects have been achieved. Finally, does FID pull the United States into local fights and risk outsourcing our, our interests? Uh, it could, uh, but it did not in the Philippines. Because of the effectiveness of the assessment and the diplomatic and political foundation established between the U.S. and the Philippine governments, and because the executing forces understood one critical and that was that the U.S. was in a supporting role. Uh, There must be effective rules of engagement. All the executing forces must have this mindset of being in support. Uh, And again, to come full circle, uh, it is the assessment done up front and done continuously uh, that will assure that our interests are aligned and that the desired effects uh, have a reasonable chance of being achieved. Uh, And with that, I will uh, close here, and I can talk in more detail on any of these issues in the Q&A.
3: Good morning. My two predecessors uh, spoke about what um, could be conceived as the uh, ideal way to conceptualize um, foreign internal defense or the ideal way to um, conduct it. And um, I was particularly struck by Sean's equating uh, for an internal defense with uh, security sector reform and uh, with the conditions that he uh, outlined. Comprehensive, after conflict has ended, no low-intensity conflict, not militias, only uh, the official uh, government forces with the purpose of creating a monopoly of the state on force, legitimate monopoly of uh, of, uh, uh, force, and long-term, as was emphasized, a decade or more. And, of course, those are uh, eminently sensible. Uh, I would, however, posit that a lot of the pressures that we are facing in uh, U.S. foreign policy today very much push against this conceptualization, this ideal type of how to conduct um, security sector reform or define um, um, foreign internal defense uh, capacity building. And in fact, the mood that we are in is one where uh, this notion of building partner capacity is very much associated with very limited, quick in-and-out intervention or very limited engagement. That precisely makes the point that we can uh, secure our interest by persuading someone else to carry the water for us and that uh, we can do so in a way that will ultimately effectively secure U.S. interests and avoid depleting our blood and treasures and getting us sucked in problematic conflicts. And so while uh, the the preceding uh, uh, speeches talk about what would be the ideal way to go about it, I will perhaps focus on what are the problematic ways to go about it, but nonetheless those that I very much believe are uh, uh, where uh, the policy thinking is and where the political pressures are. Um, In fact, in his State of the Union speech, President Obama very much uh, contrasted uh, the Iraq-Afghanistan big military interventions with much more limited engagements and precisely this notion of building partner capacity. And I'll come back to the very loaded term, partner, and picked uh, Somalia, Yemen, and Mali as examples of such limited engagements. I would posit that all three examples are very problematic, and that the outcomes there, enveloping um, uh, in front of our eyes, are hardly something that we should say, "Oh, this is the model to way this will um, secure our interest." I very much um, endorse the notion that um, the United States needs to focus on its internal, social, institutional and economic challenges. And that we will not have an effective foreign policy if we ignore uh, the internal difficulties and challenges that the United States faces. Vice versa, a U.S. foreign policy will be effective if the internal core uh, is strong. I also very much agree with the notion that we really need to rebalance um, U.S. foreign policy away from the excessive trigger-happy um, Uh, involvement in conflicts that we have seen over many years uh, really predating 9-11, although particularly over the past decade, in ways that often hemorrhaged U.S. resources and undermined U.S. credibility and ultimately leadership. Nonetheless, even this presidency at this moment very much emanated and um, uh, premised on this core belief, uh, is now facing itself stuck with very dangerous conflicts in Libya, Syria, Iraq, of course, and finding that there is no necessary easy escape uh, from these entanglements. And this notion of building up partners, uh, I'll come back to partners, um, becomes then um, a key aspect of policy. I would very much warn uh, against this notion that we can conduct our security policy on the shoestring, uh, on the basis of these quick in and out interventions that will be very easily handed over to someone else. Essentially, the embodiment of what France thought it could accomplish in Mali, and found out that it really cannot. And very much what was the notion of uh, uh, how the Afghanistan war was was to be conducted in 2001, 2002, perhaps as late as 2003, where we would pick up our presumed allies, the Northern Alliance, which was believed to have aligned interest, uh, or at least sufficiently close interest, to conduct an action. And then we would easily hand it over to someone else and get out. And we found out that we really uh, couldn't do that, and that these presumed allies did not sufficiently um, secure uh, our interest. And in fact, that very quickly there emerged to be a strong divergence between their interest and what we defined to be our interest. So let me come to partner capacity. Well, first of all, who is the partner, and what does partner mean? (laughs) Uh, the example of Afghanistan early 2001-2002 early, uh, first very much violated the notion that this would be a state force to achieve a monopoly. After all, we were trying to topple the government. So the partner was a non-state actor who we believed had at one moment the same interest as we did. A- and certainly the notion that we will build up militias uh, and not simply work through and with uh, Uh, official military state forces is very much alive. We see that in some of the embrace of the militias in uh, Mexico. Of course, the United States hasn't embraced them. The Mexican state doesn't know whether to embrace them. It changes its uh, mind about once a week on that matter. Uh, But nonetheless, there are many calls that this is precisely the way. We see uh, similar calls in Nigeria, where for uh, many reasons working with the Nigerian military is problematic. And so there are very many calls to let's build up militia forces, which are already emerging in northern Nigeria. Let's uh, engage them. Let's uh, give them training. Uh, And uh, certainly in Mali, many of the same uh, debates are coming up. Now, some of the militia forces might, frankly, turn out not to be any more abusive uh, or unreliable than the security forces of the country where we are um, thinking about uh, the intervention. And um, here it comes down to uh, the difference about having the luxury of working either post-conflict or during peaceful times with a country that has a, le- a reasonably legitimate political leadership, political system, and a unitary force, and. and, and coming into conflicts at the moment when conflict has already exploded. When there is dangerous um, insurgency or terrorism activity coming in, the military forces are clearly not coping well. So at that point, we come in to try to help them to come out uh, of the crisis. And we might find out that uh, the fact that we simply transfer capacity really does not uh, uh, translate at all into uh, having an alignment of interests that in many of these settings where we come in after crisis has erupted, there might be a momentary um, intersection of interest rather than any long-term alignment. And we might then find out that the presumed allies, whether they are official forces or unofficial ones, uh, will uh, do things that we consider problematic then potentially directly contradictory uh, to um, US national interest. So um, in that case, do we go in or do we not go in? Uh, that question cannot be answered um, in the abstract, but one of the, uh, the critical criterion needs to be uh, to think about when and how these presumed partners will defect uh, from the alignment of interest, and when and how will they undertake actions that will contradict or at least not be consistent with our interest. Do we at that point have any capacity to roll them back? Do we at the point... Um, Uh, Can we at the point take some other action to mitigate it? Is living with that outcome, for example, really miserable governance that perpetuates the conflict and keeps alive the root causes of the insecurity, better because we eliminated a very critical, imminent, uh, tactical threat at point X, or is it better to abstain and not go in? So many of these questions need to be built into the reasonable chance of uh, of success. What does, suspect, uh, what does success mean? And, and the, the, the assessment of that should be very um, much broader than it frequently is posited as simply eliminating a particular terrorist uh, group. But also strongly posit that we should not weaken uh, the human rights restrictions, uh, such as in the Leahy Amendment, uh, for engaging with both official and unofficial military forces. And this is not simply because of our values and our humanitarian interest, but because this is a very good indication whether we will be precisely stuck in a situation where the partner, quote-unquote, whom we have built up, will engage in that kind of rapacious, predatory behavior that ultimately just fuels the cycle of instability. And it should be a warning sign that perhaps those are not moments where we should engage and where we should focus our policy either on other tools of of policy or on uh, defense at our borders, where some conflicts, despite the threats they pose, might simply not be worthwhile to try to tackle. I would also suggest uh, uh, in the last minute that I have that uh, when we decide that the immediate threat is so intense that we have to go in and try to build up a very problematic military force, like in Mali or in Nigeria, uh, or in Somalia, for that matter, or a militia. We need to be able uh, to renege on that tactical deal in the same way that they will eventually renege on the deal. Now, that's an extremely cynical statement, and I'm aware of many of the pitfalls that it presents. Uh, it's cynical because uh, it involves willingness to let them sink if they command too much fire. It's cynical because of the precedent that it sets, But nonetheless, it might be uh, essential and inevitable. Uh, Otherwise, we risk a chance of becoming sucked, not just long-term, into conflicts that are very problematic, but essentially ones that are unresolvable. And because we can expect them to do the same thing um, to us. My ideal view is that frequently we shouldn't go in under such circumstances at all. But nonetheless, if we do go in, we need to build in fire breaks to be able to abort that support uh, that bargain. And my last sentence in uh, 30, my, my last uh, statement in 30 seconds, is that all of this implies investing very heavily in intelligence. And not just intelligence uh, as delivered by special operations forces, but much broader intelligence that um, is aware of the cultural sensitivities uh, of places, intelligence that focuses on the political context and long-term historic rivalries, who did what to whom 40 years before um, uh, the moment of crisis uh, erupted. Because, in fact, the less engaged we are, the more we rely on someone else and on our direction of that someone else to do things for us, the more shrewder we need to be about the the interest and pressures they will face and our limited ability to calibrate and leverage uh, the action. And so, uh, even after Benghazi, this means getting our diplomats outside of the bases to interact as much uh, with the population in difficult circumstances as much as getting special operations forces out.
4: Excellent. First of all, I'd like to thank Cato Institute and Jen for giving me the opportunity to speak today and, and for these wonderful speakers to allow me the opportunity to rewrite my speech while I sat down and, uh, and listened to everything they had to say. Um, I'd also like to make the, uh, the statement up front that um, those of us in the State Department don't normally have our own views. I'm in the enviable position not being senior enough uh, that, my, that I can't have my own views. So these are my views and do not reflect those of the, of the Department of State. What they do reflect is my experience in Afghanistan, my experience in Colombia, and perhaps uh, a look at the different sides of the spectrum as we look at FID and, and whether or not we've been successful in those two things. And I think we've, we've really hit on a lot of topics, and I try, I'm going to try to bring in a few of the things that you all said as I go through my presentation um, today. So I'm going to focus to the extent practicable on Colombia, uh, that which I, I saw in Colombia three years that I ran our INL office there, and now as the Director of Western Hemisphere, Kind of what I, it, it programs? What I'm seeing that we are leveraging from Colombia and Central America, which is which is facing very similar type of subversive lawlessness that you would find. it might not be from a uh, from an insurgency group, but certainly from uh, drug trafficking organizations that have the power and ability to subvert law institutions to an extent that's that's nearly the same as the FARC in Colombia or other groups in other countries. Um, so. In the case of Colombia, I think we had a textbook environment in which to conduct FID and COIN and these types of things, Uh, and therefore the significant and minor in comparison to Afghanistan, uh, uh, expenditure, uh, playing Colombia's around $9 billion, what we spent in Colombia because we had the right things in place, some of those already been mentioned, I want to go over a few of them as well, allowed us to get a lot more accomplished than we did with orders of magnitude, more spending, uh, focus, treasure, blood, sweat, tears in Afghanistan, because Colombia was ready for it. And I certainly couldn't agree more than with that which uh, David said, that, that Colombia can't be a model for every country. Uh, the, where Colombia was, it's relative sophistication vis-a-vis the, the insurgency, it's relative sophistication, and the ability to take on that which we were teaching them vastly differ from other countries. So it's a good, it's a good point of departure insofar as le- lessons learned, but not necessarily can be, a, can be modeled in everywhere we'll be operating. So starting out with a question, was it in the U.S. interest to support Colombia in its internal defense? Where were they and were they prepared? So 1998, it's a coin toss. Colombia is going to be a narco state, a failed state, or it's not. What do we do? Was it in our our interest? Um, Large parts of the country were effectively outside the control of the central government. It did not have a a, a, a monopoly on, on the use of force. Um, But even with this, as we began discussions in 1999 and 2000 and really Plan Columbia didn't really get rolling, uh, the money was flowing, but it takes time um, to get these programs off the ground until after 2000, 2001, um, a few things stood out to me as I thought about the experience in Columbia, which which is useful. First of all, the government had the highest level of political, economic, and security buy-in. This was their idea. This literally was their idea. And they came asking for help. The second, the government of Colombia was a strong state capable of maintaining and expanding legitimacy, but they needed help to do this. They were asking for expertise; they weren't necessarily asking for cash. And if we look at that which we gave them, it's, it's, really, a, it's really a fraction of the total that was spent on playing Colombia. In much the same way that Merida Initiative in Mexico, I think perhaps the latest figures of one out of every fifty dollars is Merida money. They're put, the, the government of Mexico is putting in the other forty-nine. It, it, it's important, it's, it's, it's structured, uh, it's, it's lasered focused, uh, but it wasn't all of the money. The government of Columbia knew what it needed to do, needed support in doing it. The insurgency, by its own, uh, foolishly, they'd made a decision to become a drug trafficking organization uh, and focused in on that. They weren't providing shadow governments and doing all these types of things that other insurgencies do when they try to undermine the legitimacy of government. So overall, there was a relative wide gap of power of the state uh, of Colombia over the insurgency, even though uh, the barbarians, if you will, were at the gate uh, as early as 2004 or 5 They were right outside the town of, of Bogota. You couldn't really, uh, couldn't really get outside of Bogota much at all. Today is a much different story. So quickly, the highlights of Plan Colombia, and I, I just give you a little bit of a flavor of it, and I, have a, I think we'll have an opportunity to discuss this in more depth. Um, several things came out of Plan Colombia, and I want to get into one of them as specific at the end of this presentation. Uh, they were instrumental in expanding state presence, legitimacy, while also expanding the power of the state relative to the illegal armed actors uh, undermining the state. Those are the drug trafficking organizations, the FARC, put the FARC in the same category as DTOs. Uh, They're transnational terrorist organization that drug traffics as well. So what are those things? Just quickly listing them off. Helicopter airlift, the ability to project power was extraordinarily important. Judicialized wiretap program. Judicialized wiretap program. And now it's to the point where we actually receive more information from the Colombians on judicialized wiretaps and we provide them. Extraordinary success. The rewards program, uh, one drug trafficker said that he could no longer have lunch with anybody if they didn't have $5 million in the bank uh, because that was the price on his head. Uh, that, that changes things a little bit for folks. The fact of extradition, there's no formal extradition treaty by the way with Colombia, but we have an agreement to do extradition and that has undermined, their, I see looks of people saying, no there is one, there's not, everybody thinks there is. There's there's not a formal treaty, but there is an agreement to do extraditions that's been extraordinarily uh, successful that's undermined the ability for people to act, um, including the FARC. The professionalization of the police and military forces, they were good before, but the the vast increase over a decade, I think somebody said we needed about a decade to get this done. It was you, David. That's exactly how long we've been working on this, a little bit longer now, actually. It's night and day from where they were to where they are today and um, focused. The government began to focus more on human rights as an increasing priority, as well as prioritizing those things even before the peace process that were the underlying root causes of the of the insurgency: uh, land title, access to justice, uh, economic opportunity. These are things that we worked through the through the country team, through DoD, USAID, the State Department, INL's office, uh, in order to in order to bring more Department of Justice to bring more uh, more of those things and capabilities to the government. Now, the results are clear. Uh, those are the things that came out of results. Homicides are down by over half since 2001. Kidnappings are down 90%. Coca-cultivation was cut in half. U.S. demand for cocaine is down over half just in the last five years. Uh, drug trafficking organizations no longer are able to operate and integrate horizontally and vertically. The life expectancy of the head of a, of a drug trafficking organization is, is now down to about 9, 10 months. In other words, they're no longer capable of creating themselves and becoming cartels. Uh, very similarly, the life expectancy of a member of the FARC has, has decreased substantially. Um, but as we learned in Afghanistan, that's just simply not enough. I mean, we, we, we got to the point where we had cells of, uh, in Afghanistan being run by 18-year-olds, but they were still able to replicate themselves. Key leadership of the FARC removed from the battlefield, expansion of state presence to all municipalities. Uh, in 1998, 20% of the country had no state presence whatsoever. 20% of the municipalities Imagine. Now, being a good South Carolinian, we, we, we oftentimes don't, don't want to have the federal government at least in our business, but you have to have some governance, um, and they, didn't, they just simply didn't have it. Today, 100 percent, 100 percent have it. The FARC enjoy a 3 percent popularity rate. Uh, that usually doesn't make them an existential threat to the state. Um, stronger, more developed state institutions. Uh, and finally, I would submit that all of these efforts have really forced the FARC to the negotiating table. They recognize this is their one moment to get something out of this deal. What do we get out of this deal? $9 billion deal. Sounds like a lot of money, but really, vis-a-vis Iraq, Afghanistan, it's not that much money. We have a stable democratic partner in the region. uh, Helps us also in international organizations. We have a free trade agreement with a growing economy of almost 50 million people, same size as all of Central America combined. We have a future source of petroleum from this stable democracy uh, that that will be, as they continue to find more, petroleum will be a... um, well, certainly as the reserves continue to grow, will be a, will be a key for us. We have, a street, and we have a strategic partner in regional capability exportation. In other words, the Colombians are now exporting that expertise elsewhere. That's what I want to quickly get into in the last couple of minutes that I have. The Colombians began to take this expertise that they learned from us through FID, what we did to support them, and they, they saw this as an opportunity. They have a comparative advantage the, to, uh, over other countries to provide this expertise. They have provided training to 22,000 people from over 65 countries, including Afghanistan, as a matter of fact. Um, We have partnered with them. When I was in Colombia, we stood up a division there to partner with them in Central America. And today, in Honduras, for instance, we have a number of activities that the Colombians are conducting together with us, uh, respecting human rights, as Vonda pointed out, uh, really focused in on building state institutions to make sure that uh, that we're not creating a future problem, uh, but the problem, that is that the problem with drug trafficking organizations and lawlessness and, and subversiveness in Central America, to put it in context, the gross domestic product of Honduras is around $18 billion a year. Uh, one operation called Operation Neptune from last year took down an organization called Los Cachiros. We seized $800 million worth of property. And I'm certain that is not even near everything that they have. So imagine, if you will, an organization with the capability of undermining state institutions, this is, a, is an organization that has the money and the, and, the, and the manpower and the firepower to go toe-to-toe with the government uh, in vast swaths of the country that are under-governed. What we got out of this was, uh, the, the president talked about it at the Summit of the Americas, is an action plan where we're partnered with Colombia in order to take this expertise that we learned, in, that the Colombians learned, and we're exporting that. That's everything from capacity we built in the Colombian police force, for instance, to do internal affairs and polygraphing of their own people, to make sure that they're doing that which they should be doing and not doing that which we all could recognize as is, is wrong. Uh, that capacity we built up in Colombia, we've now created an international polygraph academy that's now able to provide the exact same doctrine that we gave the Colombians to countries such as Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. The fact that we built up with the Colombians uh, other capability, maritime interdiction capability, the ability to operate in, in lawless areas. Uh, we've moved them from, a, from an accusatory uh, is, uh, to, excuse me from a, from a written to an accusatory system of justice. There are lots of things that we've done across the, the spectrum um, of, of state institutions that have solidified in Colombia its ability to control to control the state, has a monopoly of state power, and project to its people, uh, that, it is, that, that, that it is the state. In other words, there's education, uh, there's health care, um, there's more connection. And we did this through, the, uh, through a process called consolidation there, and it's called other things in other places. Uh, but all of those expertise, all of that that, that they learned, uh, there's a recognition, at least in Central America and some other places, that the governments there have a similar need. Now, the question will become whether or not those governments in those other countries are prepared uh, for the same kind of intervention we had, we had with Colombia. I would submit that that many of them are not, Uh, but what we've we've, uh, gained from our engagement with the Colombians is the ability to work with them, first of all it's cheaper, Uh, culturally it's a little bit easier in some places especially, but work with them to do some of the groundwork uh, to set the conditions whereby at some point in the future I think we'd be able to have a much more direct uh, fit rather than an indirect fit, if you will, uh, to use one of the previous speaker's uh, presentations. Um, In any event, I look forward to some additional questions and some back and forth on this issue, and thank you very much for your time.
0: Well, thank you to all of our panelists. I just want to, before we open it up to questions um, from all of you, I just want to make sure that any of our panelists who want to respond to comments made by others on the panel have a chance to do so. Okay. Um, so our interns have a couple of microphones. They'll be passing around. Um, so if any of you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for the mic to come to you so that I can hear you. Um, just identify yourself and your affiliation, and if you could frame your question as a question, that would be spiffy.
5: <laughs> Go ahead.
6: Okay, I'll begin. Uh, Robert Shredder with International Investor. I wonder if we could focus a little bit more on some of the blowback uh, of some of these programs, though. Um, just for starters... In some cases, certainly, it provides a propaganda tool for the opposition, both within the country and perhaps surrounding countries as well. I wonder if there are other aspects of of blowback that create negative effects as a result of these programs.
3: Uh, Sure, I would say there are many. And anticipating uh, the blowbacks and thinking whether they could be avoided and mitigated and how needs to be a critical part of both the initial and continual assessment of whether we should persist with the efforts. One real blowback possibility is that uh, I think Sean brought up that uh, there is a high chance that those who we train up within certain context will turn out to be the coup forces or, in the case of uh, counter Narcotics Forces, being t- trained up the best traffickers uh, around. Now, that still might be something that we decide to live with if, if that counters a very uh, critical, very um, immediate, very strong threat, terrorism threat, for example. But the chance that they will go rogue is often very substantial, whether they are counter-narcotics forces, whether they are um, official government forces, or uh, militias that they start predating on, on the community. And that then, of course, can trigger much wider um, uh, conflict or at least perp- uh, conflict that is being perpetuated uh, for which we have responsibility. We are both seen as having responsibility, but we also have um, uh, policy and, and moral responsibility. Again, sometimes the choice might be the threat is just so huge that we live with those consequences, but we need to uh, build that into our um, assessments and our expectations.
2: A, a specific example of blowback in, in the Philippines is, uh, you know, the very presence of U.S. forces in, in Mindanao uh, was a, a propaganda, uh, you know, bonanza both for opposition, political opposition, you know, as well as uh, for the um, the multiple opposition or, or threats that existed uh, in the Philippines. Um, one of the ways that uh, that we countered that uh, was through action, uh, and, and that was – you know, when we first went in uh, in 2001 and 2002, the accusation was immediately that we were going to conduct the same operations in the Philippines that we were conducting in Afghanistan. You know, and obviously we did not do that. Uh, we said we would not do that, uh, and over time we demonstrated that we would not do that, uh, and that mitigated some of the blowback over time. Uh, but it's inevitable that the presence of, of U.S. forces uh, with a host nation is going to be a lightning rod, uh, and it does take time uh, to try to mitigate uh, that, that blowback. You can use all the words and everything, but you have to back it up with with concrete actions. Uh, and we did demonstrate that over time. Can I just
1: add one thing? So I think the most obvious, I touched on some of the blowback potentials earlier in my presentation, is that uh, once you leave the country, who's going to own that security sector, right? Um, so we saw this, like Maliki immediately started putting Shia cronies in charge of divisions in Iraq. He stopped paying the Sons of Iraq, a Sunni militia group, as a way to unofficially demobilize them. Um, and, you know, what can the U.S. or others do? I think it's very limited. Like once we, the International community leaves this situation, I think, uh, unless we want to be there, like South Korea or, or Japan, it's very difficult to sort of control for these blowback problems. Thank you. Anyone else?
5: This
0: gentleman over here.
6: Uh, yes, John Mueller from Cato and from uh, Ohio State. Uh, just sort of listening to all the presentations, it seems to be the situation is very close to being hopeless. Uh, would you examine that a little bit? I mean, the issue is the United States has, of course, been working on this for with abject failure in the Middle East. And now in Pakistan, for example, 74% of the people in polls um, regard the United States as an enemy, uh, even as they cash the $1 to $2 billion checks that come to them each year. Uh, the, the issue seems to be when it does work, it seems you have to have a whole lot of things have to line up really nicely. Um, and so it seems to be the reasonable conclusion is that basically most of the time one shouldn't even try.
5: I, um...
1: Your uh, observation is is common <laughs> and with with, uh, with some evidence to support it. Um, I would submit that uh, many U.S. and U.N., um, this is controversial, efforts have been failures or some mitigated version of a failure. I would submit that Liberia's military is a relative success. I would submit that Colombia is a relative success. These are, and there's others as well. I think one of the reasons we we have often failures is a couple, one is that well, one is that we make, I'll start with this. One is we have an assumption that there's a like contract theory in place. So look at Pakistan. We give them all sorts of money, and we assume that since we give them aid, they will they will like us more, right? We don't know why that is. We had this debate with USA in the 1960s. People like Sam Huntington said, no, they, people will gladly take your money but not give you their obedience. Yet we create an architecture for programs where that is the underlying strategic assumption. So I think we start by sort of looking at development and say, well, just because we give them aid, uh, just because a state provides services, the population will view the state as legitimate. I think that is the first fallacy of this.
3: If I can pick up some comments um, on that. The critical issue is what does success of the intervention, and I don't mean military intervention, but the foreign uh, assistance for an internal defense intervention mean? Does it mean um, support or like greater legitimacy of the United States? Well, perhaps that might be a consideration, or it might sometimes be the consideration. Frequently, the consideration, the success, is simply avoiding a complete meltdown of the state or avoiding uh, parts of the state to be taken over by very pernicious actors. And so so I wouldn't wouldn't set the bar of of success there, but I would set the bar very high as to all the requirements uh, that need to be anticipated, the fire breaks that need to be uh, built into the assessment and um, uh, building into the assessment also the more um, medium-term and longer-term effects of the intervention. Pakistan, in my view, is not a good example um, precisely because... um, While U.S.-Pakistan policy is extremely problematic and has been probably the most tortured partnership uh, relationship over the past decade and perhaps over many decades that can come, um, I I would strongly suggest that the goal should not be to make the U.S. like. The goal should be to avoid the utter collapse of the Pakistani state. And our disengagement from Afghanistan, um, as problematic as that will be in terms of Afghanistan, might perhaps liberate the U.S. to define and view its relationship with Pakistan through that prism, as opposed to continually through the counterinsurgency in Afghanistan prism that generates lots of problematic aspects for Pakistan.
2: Your your, uh, comment and question is very important, and sometimes we have to recognize that we just can't make a difference. And I think that's why I, I harp on an assessment up front to recognize, you know, maybe we, we really can't make a difference. But to to get a, to get give a specific vignette, um, in the Philippines, I, I met with uh, the Moro Islamic uh, Liberation Front uh, leadership and I had a long uh, talk. And they were, of course, in the middle of an insurgency uh, against the Philippine government. And uh, their lead spokesman at the time, Mukhtar Iqbal, uh, we, we talked about... The amount of development that was taking place by the Philippine government, by NGOs, by USAID, uh, and and the effect that that was having uh, on the local population, uh, and he was he, he made two comments that were really uh, telling. Number one, he told us Americans uh, that he believed that we could force the the Philippine government to make political concessions uh, that they wanted. That we had the power to do that, uh, which you know clearly is not not the case. Uh, and the second is that uh, if their political problems were not solved, <clears throat> that their insurgency would continue despite all the development uh, and everything taking place, all the aid to uh, the local population. I think that's very important. And, and what we've seen now in the last year is that a peace agreement between the Philippine government and the more Islamic liberation front was signed uh, and they're moving to political accommodation. Uh, and that was done uh, not brokered through the U.S., uh, although we, of course, supported it and, uh, and are, are, are happy with that. But that outcome is the result of the Philippine government uh, and their actions uh, with, with their insurgency. And I, I make that point just to emphasize that sometimes we cannot be the ones that solve problems, and we need to recognize that and recognize that
4: at the beginning. I think on this one. <clears throat> on this one, I'd like to jump in. Uh, perhaps I'm an optimist to some extent because I don't work on the intractable issues that my colleagues are working on day in and day out. I have the, the benefit of having worked on something a little that, that, that I do think is not a relative success but a success. Um, but again, it, it, not all places are, are, are ready for it. And the question I think really becomes defining, defining other political goals that you might want to have as well in uh, recognizing that you, you may have to define, as I think Vonda said, uh, and, and David as well, and Sean, what we intend to get out of the relationship. So there are other political goals that we'll have, for instance, in Pakistan um, or in Israel or in Egypt. Uh, and again, I'm not expert on those things. And in Central America, we certainly look at that which, that which what are the opportunity costs of not doing something? Uh, so for instance, I would, I would tell you and submit... Uh, that in Honduras they're not at the same place, for instance, that Colombia is. We couldn't have a plan Honduras tomorrow, I don't believe, um, although there is political will there. The president has been extraordinarily forward-leaning on this, but, but they may not be in the same position uh, through their own populace in order to deal with the, the lawlessness and subversiveness that's going on in society, as well as the, the level of the institutions, the lack, of, lack perhaps the same level of sophistication that Colombian institutions had that made them successful. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't do anything because we have political imperatives in those countries. Um, and I would give you an example from AID, for instance. Um, Bolivia is not a middle-income country. I do not believe somebody here can set me straight on this. It's still in a very much developing. Uh, USAID spent 50 years there uh, before they left. Uh, I guess it was last year they left. Fifty years. Uh, yeah, they did. Yeah, the question to ask is, well, what would, what would have happened had they not spent 50 years working in Bolivia? There are those that say we'll probably be exactly where they are today. And there are others that would say that, that, that the interventions, um, while you can't necessarily claim them successful, did things and did set the stage uh, to improve the condition in Bolivia. And I would say the same thing about FID when I look at working with police forces in Guatemala or El Salvador or Panama or, 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 or what have you. Uh, that 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 something. Sometimes we make a political determination to operate, whether or not we think we'll be fully successful as we'd like to define success. And my definition of success is kind of the Columbia model.
0: So I'd take the uh, moderator's prerogative here to ask a follow-on question, both um, to respond to the audience, but also perhaps to prod the panelists a bit as well is um, taking in mind uh, Dave's point about the fact that many of these operations are sort of idiosyncratic, they're all unique in a certain way. Uh, Coupled though with um, sort of Sean and some of Vanda's points on whether or not we're looking for ideal type uh, situations, because even in Vanda's uh, characterization of sort of more shorter term like emergency responses, the intelligence requirements to really know what we're getting into are fairly high. Um, So I'm wondering if there is a feasibility of not having a sort of menu of set options, but rather identifying sort of bins within this larger basket of sort of truly contingency or truly emergency operations where we have a set of expectations for perhaps lowered expectations of what the viable outcomes might be, uh, particularly a set of off-ramps or um, or, or sort of the the ability to change that up uh, versus uh, a portfolio of, of options that are available for these middle-income or, or you know, sort of more viable partners that really aren't at the other end of the spectrum that have more capabilities. So again, possibly subdividing the basket a little bit and the degree to which that might be feasible or helpful.
2: Question or? Yeah. I just I just respond to that uh, you know quickly. I think one of the things we we have to. Uh, uh, Keep in mind, we have to prevent uh, the mindset that we just have to do something. Right. I think that that we in these emergency situations that uh, um, and the the other thing we have to recognize is that there is no silver bullet. Uh, and I think we have to go into these operations with uh, um, you know with our eyes open, uh, not only for ourselves but also for the American public as well. Uh, and there are times when we have to do things as uh, you know, as was said, you know, for other political reasons. Okay. We've got to accept that, uh, but we may not be able to achieve an outcome that is expected uh, perhaps by the general public or even by political leaders uh, in, in every case. And uh, so we've got to clearly identify, you know, what is feasible, you know, why we're there, uh, realizing that there's no silver bullet, and uh, um, and sometimes just doing something uh, may not be the right thing. Right
0: here on the front, please.
1: Uh, given this, uh, Ricardo Marquez, GAO, given the uh, discussion about futility of the action and Dr. McFate's reference to perhaps private actors might be better at this than governments are, is there, could there be a discussion of briefly of the survey of international market capacity, which firms within the United States, other firms outside the United States, is this a, is there strengths, weaknesses to that approach? Sure. Sure. Um, In the last, that's a good question, I think. Uh, One of the, uh, right or wrong, the private sector has a lot more experience in the past 10 years of doing these types of operations because of the U.S.'s unprecedented leaning on the private sector in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think some of the resources, expertise, et cetera, exist now in the private sector. um, And there is still a lot of problems with how the government-private sector interface on that. Um, I think one of the interesting questions will be going in the next 10 years is will the U.N. turn to the private sector for some capacity in peacekeeping operations? I think they already have, particularly in security sector reform. Um, it's an interesting question to, to think about. Uh, it's not just all cons. or some pros, but there needs to be a smart way to do this. Can they do this with a, some sort of registration scheme, uh, accountability, et cetera, or will it just be very laissez-faire like we've seen the last 10 years? There's a lot more to discuss. Obviously, I think the question is pretty interesting.
3: I would add to that: the the problem of interest alignment becomes even more compounded, Uh, not only because the private security company or whatever business is selling its service has an interest in perpetuation of the problem, then they can be selling their services, but for a whole host um, of other reasons. And it is, uh, in my view, as much of a um, of a seductive cop-out to say, well, we don't want to do it ourselves, so we outsource it to locals or we outsource it to private security companies as saying we will build up these local partners. Now, that, that's also not, not to say that we should never do it. Obviously, um, it will ha- be happening. It will be happening without our sponsorship of acquiescence. Many governments are turning to private security companies because they cannot cope. Um, but uh, thinking about the divergence of interest in these settings and and how uh, it becomes far more compounded problems than simply uh, the partner nation, the local nation, and us, but other actors in between, Uh, and what kind of monitoring, vetting, rollback, uh, other intervention capacities with the private security companies we have um, is very important. Can I
1: take a two-second reply to some of that, though? I mean, since we're at Cato, I thought people consistently ask, well... What are the interests of the private sector? It must be somehow negative, but to sort of paraphrase Friedman, you know, why do we assume national interests are more noble than commercial ones?
0: Right. This gentleman here in the middle.
6: Uh, I'm Hank Gaffney. From uh, used to be in the office of Secretary of Defense and uh, the Center for Naval Analyses. Been a student of the. Politics of the Developing Area since 1959, did my dissertation on Sierra Leone um, and came back from Sierra Leone and spent the next 13 years on NATO nuclear weapons. So, But I was the director of plans in uh, DSAA, Defense Security Assistance Agency, throughout the uh, 1980s and, of course, deep into El Salvador. One thing that strikes me about the Philippines, El Salvador, uh, and uh, Colombia is that these were in a sense, fringe insurgencies. They were out on the outer edge. We got deep into uh, El Salvador because they were about to hit the capital. But uh, take, let me just ask, we've been watching this serious situation and I've been reading about it for the last couple of years, waiting to see if anybody has any solutions. The solutions are always, let us find the moderates and take care of them And the more we look for them, the more they seem to disappear. So what do you do, really, in a Libya and a uh, Syria, where it's total anarchy with militias of different kinds running all over the place? I guess
2: I've been asked to jump on the hand grenade on that one. Um, You know, I think you really hit the... the, uh, uh, just how complex and how difficult the problem is. I, you know, the easy answer is there's no easy answer in Syria and Libya in those situations. And um, uh, yes, and just you know the the uh, idea that we're going to find the moderates and support them, uh, you know, that clearly hasn't worked out. Although you know maybe it would have years ago, uh, but uh, you know we we obviously didn't do that. And so now we're in in a position, or or Syria and the people of Syria uh, are in a in a very bad uh, situation. Of course, that seems to be getting worse with ISIL and uh, and everything. So, um, you know, I don't have an easy answer. Uh, uh, and, you know, it really, you know, it's policy strategy. Uh, and then what can we do to support that? You know, I, I really don't know what the, the policy and the strategy is in terms of, uh, of Syria right now. Um, and so, you know, that makes it very difficult. And, and then we get into a position You know, as as I think you're alluding to, where, okay, find the moderates and just do something. Well, you know, it's maybe terrible to say, but maybe, you know, we're not in a position to do something, at least the United States. And I think that sometimes we have to recognize that. And uh, even though that may be politically, uh, um, you know, infeasible for us, uh, sometimes we, we just can't make a difference. And even worse, sometimes we may make it worse you know, by our, our intervention. So uh, these are tough tough situations, and, and I honestly don't have a good answer for you on Syria or, or Libya.
3: If like I can add to that, I mean, lots of the analysis, of course, um, faces the fundamental problem that what's a moderate at time X, uh, who is a moderate at time X might not be a moderate at times Y, mm-hmm. just like what is an interest for an actor or a state at time X might look very different at times B. And so even when we are in the position of saying, "Okay, this is an actor that we can work with and that has roughly the core same interests and expectations that we have, that might change several months down the road, several weeks down the road. And that needs to be built into the analysis. Do we go in facing these risks? Do we have a capacity then to extract ourselves? Or can we somehow overwhelm if that happens the actor? So I very much endorse the notion, sometimes the best policy is staying out. That's extremely difficult. It's extremely painful. It comes with costs. Syria is a, a tragedy, not just because of what's happening internally, but because of the large repercussion that it has for the region. But nonetheless, we just might have to come to grips with the fact that many of the interventions will not be like Colombia, very luxurious, far away with little impact on what's happening uh, in the regional um, setting or what's happening um, in terms of U.S. geostrategic interests. And we might have to uh, swallow the reality that our capacities are limited. The worst is to go in thinking that we can make a difference quickly in these in-and-out kind of cheap interventions, that somehow we can control it. Uh, I much rather see us, if we conclude that the interests are so vital, they threaten major security uh, of the homeland or of major U.S. assets abroad, then we need to be prepared to go in and get dirty with the politics, get, get dirty with the governance, and expect it will take long term. If the interests are not that vital, then maybe not coming in is the better way.
5: Hi, I'm Laura Lumpy from Open Society Foundations, and thank you so much for organizing this and holding it today. It's it's super timely. Um, The Senate Appropriations Committee defense uh, subcommittee is going to mark up tomorrow the OCO request uh, that President Obama sent in, uh, which includes, of course, uh, a request for a $5 billion counterterrorism partnerships fund. And I wonder, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk here about um, the need for assessments, which I totally agree, both uh, up front and throughout the process and, and perhaps, you know, terminal. Um, these programs in general seem to me to be devoid, though, from at least any kind of public, you know, assessment. I do hope that they take place at the, at the combatant command level. But it's not, it's, it's not clear from the outside anyway what, what success, how success has been defined, uh, what the goals are, how we know whether we're getting our money's worth. Um, it, it, that's, that's, uh, points to, I guess, a broader lack of, uh, transparency around this sector in general, you know, for development assistance, uh, rightly, uh, the contractors and, and agencies have been required to, uh, to, uh, to, to show uh, what they're doing and to uh, talk about how they're measuring efficacy and, and whether they're getting toward where they're trying to go. I wonder what advice you would have for the defense appropriations subcommittee as they mark up the OCO request tomorrow uh, in terms of what kinds of constraints to put around this $5 billion request to make sure that the people's money is as well spent as possible uh, in terms of uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, from from scoop to nuts, starting with uh, a, 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 discre- a a a target, uh, a laying out of a clear uh, objective, uh, uh, figuring out whether we're getting toward it, uh, et cetera. And um, I would also just flag that that OCO request um, would would allow uh, money this five billion to go to um, irregular forces and um, uh, I forget how they defined it exactly, but but non-state actors. And so, I wonder if you could comment on that too. But just kind of broadly, what what advice you would give to the to the uh, appropriators as they think about what to do with that request?
4: I'm going to come
2: in on this later. One of them well, first of all, I, I would uh, I would love to change the name from the Counterterrorism Partnership Fund. I think that's problematic that we're so narrowly focused on on terrorism because these problems are, are go beyond uh, you know terrorism. Um, I think that uh, I think you, that Congress does have a right and a responsibility to demand assessments, demand what are what are the measures of effectiveness, uh, and um, I, and I know that uh, you know transparency is necessary. Those will argue though that uh, it's hard to publicize those as operations are going on because that uh, you know might uh, might affect other actors. Uh, so, but I think that, that I think that there is a responsibility to provide that evaluation. And it's, as I said, continuous. That's part of assessment. Um, every situation is different. Go back to the gentleman's question on, uh, on El Salvador, Philippines, and Colombia. They were fringe operations. I think that's why uh, you know, we can't call those models for others, as they certainly don't apply directly to places like Syria, Libya, or even throughout Africa. Uh, some parts may or may not. But I think that we do uh, have to provide uh, um, measures of effectiveness that are uh, that are measurable and and that Congress can see, but I, you know, the five billion dollar counterterrorism partnership fund, um, I, I think we've got to move beyond terrorism. I mean, terrorism is a threat. Terrorism is important, but the threats are are much broader than that as well. And so I think, uh, I, just my personal opinion, I'd I'd rename that to to something else.
3: I, I would endorse that, and not not simply to uh, play with the names, but to more broadly drive the point that the goal should be to increase public safety in a way that connects citizens with the state. Uh, Because that is what's in the long term sustainable. Now, that might not be the objective every single instance we allocate and appropriate money, but that should be the broader framework. Now, in in that broader framework, there will be instances where we are happy with the outcome if certain people are killed. Now, I am often very leery of defining that as success, and frustrated by often this elimination of certain dangerous people taking place in the absence of much larger strategy and political vision of what should happen in the environment. Now, that's not to say that certain people should not be arrested or killed if they cannot be arrested. But nonetheless, what is the broader framework that that action is supposed to feed into that assures longer term stability? I would also build uh, into the appropriation a rule that simply crying terrorism is not sufficient to get money from the U.S. Just like uh, drugs uh, at one point, or perhaps even still today, just like communism not so long ago, or perhaps very long ago, was uh, the mechanism to extract resources and rents from the United States, terrorism has become that, and... uh, that goes back into um, Dave's, Dave's emphasis, and I, I strongly endorse, on what is the feasibility that, what, what, what is the chance that we will make a critical difference?
4: I want to jump on this a little bit as well. Um, you, you know, I, I, do, I do think, and if you pardon the expression, uh, depending on certain programs, SERP is one of them that I saw firsthand in Afghanistan. We, we have a tendency to go into this drunken sailor stage uh, of spending just to spend, um, and haven't quite thought it through. This has happened in the past, and again, these are my own personal uh, views. Uh, but, but having said that, I will say that, at least from the perspective of, of the State Department and INL and what we're doing and how we're operating now, we have worked into all of our interagency agreements, all of our contracts and grants with NGOs, IGOs, and others, uh, exactly the type of monitoring and evaluating that, 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 that you all know is necessary, and we recognize as well. I think some of this as well... As we look at well, when is an intervention going to be good? I look at I look at countries the same as I look at a program. Uh, I know a program will succeed based on a few very very minor facts. There's a, there's some political buy-in. There's some skin in the game, if you will excuse the expression. But that's another one where some, somebody put something into it. Uh, it's their idea. All the things that make Columbia writ large successful make individual finite programs successful. Now, having said that, I, you know when when we look at our interventions, one of the difficulties that we have. Uh, we certainly synchronize over geography and time, at least in the Columbia context, and we attempt to do it in Central America as well, with DOD and AID and ourselves, um, our interventions to, to connect, as Vonda rightly stated, uh, the, the positive connection between the people and their security institutions, between the people and their and the police, for instance. It's kind of hard sometimes to, to, to draw out the measures of effectiveness. It's it's you, you kind of get a sense of it when it's going right, um, but there are all these external things that 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 will affect us—a change in government, um, things that we can't control necessarily, right? Uh, but we have certainly—I think—we are much further along than we were even just two years ago on this this particular uh, this particular issue.
2: Let me uh, just yeah. add to that that point. Uh, um, I think also sometimes what the tactical units do on the ground in terms of assessments, uh, you know, don't get translated up to uh, inside the beltway here. And so I think that it, it may be worth looking at, uh, at some of those tactical assessments to try to translate uh, um, uh, you know, some of the measures of effectiveness. But one example, prior to 9-11 in the Philippines, we uh, were directed by the State Department to provide a mobile training team to stand up their national-level counterterrorism force. Uh, and as part of that, uh, we, we had some very specific uh, um, uh, goals and, uh, and ways to measure uh, what we were, what we were doing. And the initial plan was one, of course we had to monitor the equipment that we provided them, uh, you know, very high tech and, uh, and we monitored it for years uh, to ensure that it's functional and, and properly employed. Uh, but second, our, our plan was that we were going to provide training and equipping for one small force. Uh, and then it was to train their, their, their force to be able to train and sustain themselves. Uh, we provided element training for one element, then together, We provided combined training for the second element, and the third element the Filipinos did on their own. And they continue to sustain that uh, today, you know, some 15 years later uh, on their own without our our, uh, direct assistance. And to me, that is one indication uh, where our training uh, can have an effect initially, uh, but the real measure of effectiveness is can they sustain it over time. And the problem is that uh, to, to be able to judge that It doesn't fit in with our our budget cycles uh, because, you know, this has taken some time to be able to identify, uh, you know, and reveal those effects. Uh, But those are the kind of things that we really need to look at.
0: Thank you to everyone in the audience and thank you to our panel. We've um, unfortunately run out of time on this very interesting subject. But if you would all uh, care to join us, we're going to have lunch on the second floor in the conference area. If you need the restroom, it's up up the... uh, spiral staircase in the middle, and look for the uh, yellow wall. I'd like to thank everyone on the panel and uh, Cato's conference staff for making this happen and our research assistant, Alex uh, Verscore-Kirce, for his help as well. So thank you all.